Edison Glasgow is, uh, according to what list was it? Time Out? Time Out. Time Out magazines Time out. in the world. Not just the UK, the world. Wow. I mean, really, they should be sending everybody AirPods at that point. Right? Just yeah, for existing yeah. in the area and making it cool. Thanks, gentrification. Yeah, you're not allowed on Duke Street without at least, what? like, your AirPods and mm-hmm. your glasses. Yeah, like Hornbill friends. Is that a thing? Hornbill? No. Anyway, but yes, in answer to your question, we're doing fine, considering the shitstorm that is this year. Yes, correct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, How about you? No, fine. 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 Code for... Don't ask. Don't, don't ask. ask. We're all here. <laughs> we're all here. We're doing... Fine. Yeah, we're all in this <laughs> astral and temporal plane, just about, mm-hmm, more or less. Mm-hmm. Just about, just about. What more yeah. is needed? Exactly. I feel like fine is akin to, like, nice, in terms of, like, as a, as a terrible word that people just use to, when they're like, you know what, it's better just not to ask. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. What are they like? They're so nice. Such a nice person. Absolute wanker. That's what that means. Yeah, fine. So fine. Fine. Functioning. Yeah, yeah. Functioning. <laughs> um but yeah thanks so much for coming on like it's really nice to see you first of all it's been like weird like several months it's not you know i feel like the last time we were in a cafe like chatting about how shit things were and then they got worse well right more for us (laughs) those idiots oh to take me back to henderson's for an overpriced vegan sandwich that'd be great correct (laughs) they're shutting down Henderson's what? like they're shutting down. Yeah, because there's no, like the Louise, I can't fucking take this. <laughs> I know, but it's like the one kind of Edinburgh thing that I know about because my mum did her nurse training in Edinburgh and mm-hmm. uh, she used to go to Henderson's all the time. So the first time I went to Edinburgh, my mum she was like, Oh, we'll go to Henderson's, it'll be great. And yes, it's quite a special oh, no. part of my heart in Henderson's. But yeah, no, it's closing down because they can't afford the pandemic, post pandemic world. Oh, God. genuinely gutting. Just to shit on your parade even more. That's not the expression, yeah. but now it is. Shit on your parade. Yeah. <laughs> shit hit the fan slash rain on your parade, but just combine them because... Yeah, thanks for shitting on our parade. <laughs> Don't tell me not to live, just sit and putter. Life's candy and the sun's a ball of butter. Don't bring around a cloud of shit on my parade. Hello and welcome to Law My Praxis, where today we are talking with the writer, academic and badass intersectional feminist witch, Dr. Alice Tarbuck. She is an award-winning poet who seeks to make poetry accessible for all through interactions with the natural world. Her first book, A Spell in the Wild, A Year and Brackets, Six Centuries of Magic, explores the everyday magic that you can find in a sixth floor stairwell or an overgrown snicket. Hi, Alice. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to see your tiny square faces. (laughs) You're welcome. My tiny square face says hi. Who says hi. Um, Yeah. So normally we like to start things off by asking you to introduce yourself after our fabulous introduction we just gave you there through a boring fact, like the most boring fact about yourself. We don't want to be entertained. No. Oh, this this is really easy. I have a really really textbook kidneys okay what was in like the shape yeah i once had an ultrasound and the guy was like these are some really exemplary kidneys (laughs) (laughs) that's the weirdest chat up line i've ever heard (laughs) right hannibal-esque kind of like yeah like with a nice chianti Like kind of like bean shaped, like the little beans, like kidney beans. Oh yeah, and it's really, really easy to see um, the tube that goes in and the tract that comes out and and leads to my bladder. So great times 
So well, well done. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I feel you should be congratulated for that. Yeah, well done. You can have a reward I mean, for yeah. that as well. Yep. <laughs> Award-winning kidneys. <laughs> gold star. Love that. Yeah, gold star kidneys. Yeah, I like but, that. That's great. Yeah, I also like the fact that usually when we have guests on, like it's like, oh, boring. I can't think of a boy fact about myself because I'm just so interesting. And you were just like, right, bang. Yeah. My kidneys are really boring. Textbook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tick. Now, that section usually lasts longer because they usually are and are. But um, that's fine. No, no hesitation, deviation, or repetition. I, you know. I feel like you prepped this. You prepped the boring facts. Well, I, I wish I had. I wish it wasn't just so uppermost and constant in my mind. But alas. Boy, you just every day just wake up and think, God, I've got fucking perfect kidneys. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> oh, 2020 is fucking shit. But you know what? They're sitting right in my back, right there. <laughs> Textbook. <laughs> Incredible. Is this what you would go into your Tinder bio, moving on to that? Like, you know, in terms of if you were to continue to introduce yourself to others? That would be the only thing. And also, if I were on OkCupid, which is a much longer text limit, it would also be ah. the only thing. Why expand? That's everything that everyone needs to know about me. We do usually ask about an academic Tinder bio. Is that something that you could... Wrap out. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. If it's an academic Tinder bio and you wanted to convince us as we're discerning serious scholars of the arts and humanities, you know, reviewer two is in the room right now, are they going to swipe left or right? The pressure. If there's, if there's a lot of pressure, but, I mean, <laughs> come on. You're award-winning writer. Can't even say it. More <laughs> award-winning <laughs> Oh, goodness. I mean, it has to be that, like, I like things that stand up, fold out, and have barely any words on them at all. Oh, that's very good. <laughs> that is. Oh. Okay, wait. So, right. Can, can you now go into this in slightly more depth? Yeah. Things that stand up, fold out, and have no words on them at all. Yeah. Is it a book or a penis? Is it a book or a penis is the name of my game show, <laughs> where I'm brought things in archive boxes and have to decide. Subscribe. Subscribe. <laughs> um, the, the, the prize is not having to go home with a penis in a box. Um, Good. Yeah. Um, do you mean in a serious way, as in what I actually Yeah, like I, I mean, what, what makes you think that I don't want to be serious? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but no, in a serious way. So how does that, how does that kind of, the idea of, particularly this idea of the, I don't know, the, the, the blank page, not blank, you didn't say blank. What did you say? Uh, barely any words at all. Barely any words, that's it. Is that because you enjoy the space of the page? What's going on there? I do. I love the space of the page. The more space, the better. If nobody wrote anything, wouldn't it be soothing? Um, <laughs> Our jobs would be so much easier. I mean, I work on illiteracy, so this is great for me. I mean, yeah. I, I, can barely, I can barely read personally because mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone knows, but I'm dyslexic. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like my thing. where um, <laughs> all my research comes from. Every episode. Yeah, yeah. every episode. I mean, I, I will be honest. I think the only reason I study poetry because it is mostly blank page. Correct. Yeah. And similarly, because I've got a massive chip on my shoulder because I'm dyslexic, that's why I did the Victorians, because I'm like, I can get through a thousand-page novel, just see that I can. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck yes. you all. Nothing, like, nothing too long, nothing too turgid. Look what I can do. <laughs> I'm not enjoying myself. I've read them all. And now I never have to again. Yes, my thesis was on post-1960s minimalist poetry and conceptual art, including land art and mm. poetry. And I now work 
on, or I'm trying to work on, please, would someone give me some money if anyone is listening to this, Embedded Landscape Poetics on Disability Access. Hello, Welcome Trust. Hello, Welcome Trust. £100,000, please. Are you there? <laughs> welcome, it's like welcoming, like access. So you, can, you may have that pun. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. Thanks. And so are they. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so bad. I love it. Tragic. Yeah. But how many puns can we get out of the Welcome Trust? Let's keep going. Yeah, they actually have a, a small grants for puns scheme. Oh, do they? Amazing. I wish. I really wish. That would be <laughs> solid. Did you really think that that was true, Louise? I love that. Do you think? <laughs> that was acting. That was acting. I was acting, <laughs> actually. No, I, t- I totally <laughs> fell for that because I'm a fucking idiot. So does that kind of link into like this idea about like accessible poetry, you know, like access and landscape? Is that a poetic thing or like how? Yeah, so, I'm, I'm, I'm really not phrasing a question there. <laughs> what is this thing that you do? Um, yeah. So basically, I'm interested in this idea that often we think of accessible poetry as being poetry, which is linguistically straightforward, which doesn't contain a lot of the poetic techniques that we might commonly associate with poetry and also that mm-hmm. take as its subject matter something quite contained, quite simple, a universalizing concept or a concrete object. And I'm very interested in this idea that actually incredibly accessible poetry can be incredibly complicated and enmeshed and can do really surprising things. So the kind of guiding principle of concrete art is that it can be apprehended in the same way as representational visual art. It doesn't need to be read. The meaning of the page becomes apparent upon looking rather than reading. And what I'm very, very interested in is the way in which poetry has the potential to create imaginative spaces in all sorts of surprising ways that can offer imaginative access to landscape and help develop both the kind of ethics of care for landscape that can occur at a distance without needing to be an able-bodied person embedded in landscape in traditional ways, but that can also look at the ecological preservation. So it can look at this idea that we can access landscape imaginarily at removed rather than tramping over maca or things that shouldn't really be touched. But also the kind of flip side to that is in places where poetry has been put into the landscape, so land art, poetics, or things like, I'm now going to forget its name because I'm an idiot, but the the poetry trail up north, there are quite a few of them, but there's one in Scotland, Mm. um, which is a kind of organised walk where poetry is written on wood and stone and glass and embedded in landscape. And I'm very interested in the ways in which those installations make the landscape very accessible to people. So another example would be Jupiter Artland, which is broadly speaking wheelchair accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, not everywhere, but it's a far more kind of tamed accessible landscape because of the way the art forces the shape of the landscape to change than it would be if it were wild. And what that does both to the kind of the ecosystem, but also to what happens to poetry in place. Cut my life into pieces. This is my research methodology. So it's essentially a big fuck you to Wordsworth then. Correct. That's my entire... Excellent. If dyslexia is your internal motivating factor for academia, mine is a kind of seething, deep loathing of... Wordsworth. Wordsworth. Yeah. <laughs> Just purely of Wordsworth. Wordsworth, Brackett and his sister. Although I like her more. <laughs> oh, wow. You're coming for Dorothy. Coming Interesting. For Dorothy. I never had... tell, me what... tell me your Dorothy beef. Oh my God, go for it. So the thing is that feminist eco-criticism has really gone hard on reclaiming Dorothy and being like mm-hmm. oh, Wordsworth was the interesting one which lol no nobody did well wait till you not even Wordsworth Wordsworth's always like uh, by the way Dorothy's in this poem too and she's way better right she's way cooler than me so 
you know, people are like, well, actually, Dorothy's very important. She has a very important ecological contribution to make. All of this is true. However, I think what everybody overlooks is that Dorothy Wordsworth's diaries are one of the most boring textual artefacts of the 20th, 19th or 20th century. They are paralleled only perhaps by Queen Victoria's diaries, both of which I once took on holiday and read, which I think is where the fault may lie. Yeah, that's not a beach read. Is it like, you know, dear diary, I have textbook kidneys? No, because that'd be interesting. Victoria's <laughs> <laughs> would be like, dear diary. I'm pregnant again. I'm also very old. <laughs> I'm, also and I'm very getting old. fat and I'm not amused. Dear diary, today I was shown some horses. They were broadly speaking indifferent. Good night. <laughs> Is that literally it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dear diary, we are in this castle. We have seen these people. I'm still alive. <laughs> Goodbye. Give me some give me some Dorothy. What's Dorothy got? Oh my god, all of Dorothy's are like, well, today I walked forty miles because the other option was to sit and talk to my brother. <laughs> Here is every single thing I saw. Here is every single thought I had, all of which were like extremely Christian and, and great. Here are like 40 different kinds of flower. Also, I saw Coleridge in some ways worse than my brother. In some ways worse. Okay, good. I'm glad, I'm glad it didn't go down some sort of like weird erotic route. Or am I? Maybe that would have made it more interesting. See, I always preferred Coleridge just on principle because... Because he did opium. Well, pretty much, yeah. There was... This mental theory of someone who used to work at an institu- institution that both me and Alex have been connected with. Not be named. This person who's now retired had this batshit theory about how Dorothy Wordsworth was just high on drugs all the time and that her dealer was another one of the romantics. And he was writing this monograph about Dorothy Wordsworth's dealer. And I think that she got involved in like drug deals as well. I mean, I would read this. I would read that monograph. I would watch the Netflix series. Yes, no, I would. I would. Dealing with Dorothy. Come on, it's happening. Let's do it right now. (laughs) Dealing with Dorothy or Daffodil with Dorothy. Oh, Daffodil with Dorothy. Very good. Can I just ask, is it De Quincey who they think was her dealer? I don't think so, because that would make sense. That would make too much sense. It doesn't help that I'm half remembering it as well. But, like, it's a batshit theory that's based on nothing from... Academia. Not just academia, but someone... It was their theory that was based on not a lot that I'm also half remembering. So it, it, there's, there's layers of fun to play with there. I think these are joyful mischaracterizations, though, and I don't think we should in any way attempt to correct them. No, not at all. I fucking love it. Grasmere. Dorothy Wordsworth. Speaking of potent plants, Alice, we do know that you do a lot of sort of um, foraging yourself. Yes. So could you tell us, just for reasons unassociated with this podcast and lockdown because we have nothing else to do, what are some of the most potent plants that are easily accessible in um, the east end of Glasgow? Okay, so, well, for that, you're going to need the phone numbers of some terribly obliging young men. But (laughs) but, uh, in terms of things that one can forage, the UK is not particularly big on interesting psychotropic plants although there are some most of them are so obviously magic mushrooms Mm -hmm. which are just coming in a little bit late for now there should still be some around not in the east end of Glasgow I'm just gonna say it now if you find mushrooms because someone has like spilled them from their Tesco trolley (laughs) excuse me we have a zero waste market in Deniston. We're That's the true. eighth coolest neighbourhood <laughs> in the world. Yeah, excuse me as well. It's also the lo- my local is a little. Um, so and the zero waste market is actually zero waste local. market is actually closer. I get my veg box weekly, and they probably could get you some magic mushrooms. They could probably hook you up. <laughs> so 
mugwort, which is Artemisia vulgaris, grows really commonly. It's like a tall, leafy plant. You can Google it. There are lots of variations, but that has interesting properties when burned, although it should mm. not be ingested other than passively, like from a bonfire. What are the interesting properties? It's mildly psychotropic. Interesting. And it also makes flames burn purple. <gasps> okay, cool. Mm. I'm in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So purple flames plus the psychotropic effect just sounds like it's amazing already. Sounds like a great way to spend a weekend. (laughs) And you can increasingly buy through reputable online retailers, such as Etsy, various (laughs) farms. So you can buy flying ointment, which is an ointment which uses kind of henbane and a bunch of other things that you should not take in large amounts that you can rub onto places where the skin is thin, so your wrists and your ankles, and which can in some people induce trance-like states, shall we say. Wink. (laughs) Don't be bored this winter. (laughs) This sounds like a a tagline for Visit Scotland just then. That was great. Um, (laughs) Visit Scotland, don't be bored this winter. Correct. Obviously, I should say as a legal disclaimer, because I can feel my lawyer having a little little baby. (laughs) No... But you should forage anything they aren't sure about and that I in no mm. way condone the use of poisons or psychoactive substances. No, but you do know where to get them. But I, anyway. But I'm interested, how did you how did you get into foraging as do you think it informs your, shall we say, praxis? I think we should is foraging yes, is it is it like an element of your research foraging based? Is it more sort of like, I don't know. Yeah, does it inform your academic insights in any way? Or is it just sort of like a happy coincidence that you both enjoy that kind of area and also it infiltrates my brain is so fucking gone can't speak why do you like foraging alice <laughs> tell us tell us the truth tell us alice tell us so aggressive. <laughs> it, was more, it was more just yelling at myself for my inability to speak and form a very good question tell me alice how does foraging inform your You're practice just foraging is for words there. there we go yes i was foraging for words I think fundamentally what I am interested in is how we perceive landscape through the various modes of interaction with it that are available to us. Obviously my background is in poetic, so so I'm interested in the ways we access things textually, but mm-hmm. I also don't always think that that is the most interesting way of accessing things. So one of the people who I'm hoping to do more work on is the kind of sound artist and composer Hannah Talicki. Oh yes, her stuff is incredible. Yeah which often contains kind of bird noises or or kind of vocalizations that are not words mm-hmm. but which convey encounters with nature and that often her work takes place in beautiful natural places that have particular mm-hmm. resonances either mythic or or literal like acoustic resonances so foraging is part of how we as humans haptically engage with landscape mm-hmm. so it's part of part of not only seeing our landscape but understanding it there have been loads of studies done on how many children don't know where a potato comes from or couldn't tame an otter through their wild songs or like whatever it is that people are worried about children <laughs> not being able to do anymore rob mcfarlane shut up yeah oh, don't even get me fucking worse than dorothy worse than dorothy yeah <laughs> um, well, we, we already established that actually Dorothy's Jewel Renaissance as a drug lord, so you know. <laughs> we don't hate Dorothy anymore, we stand Dorothy. Yeah. yeah, decoding Dorothy's journals to reveal the true. But yes, I think that foraging, I'm interested in what we learn about landscape when we put ourselves in it and are asked to learn things about it in very practical ways. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of 
nature writing and a lot of kind of ecological rhapsodizing. Whilst it is well-meaning and whilst it attempts to develop theories of engagement, it comes very short of being anything useful or practical. And I'm very interested in, in what happens when you ask people to do things in landscape and what kinds of knowledge and perception become important and what kinds of knowledge and perception become completely irrelevant. Like, it is absolutely no good having a very complex theory. It's, it's no good being Heidegger. I mean, it's no good being Heidegger, like, full stop. Full stop, just finish it there. There we go, that's done, we're done. It's no good being Heidegger. It's no good being Heidegger. But it's no good being Heidegger if you are in a position where what you need is not to feel connected to your soil by your kind of blood and land, but in fact, you just need to, like, not die of starvation. What can I say except you're welcome? The many funded projects in the field of medical humanities. Hey, it's okay, it's okay, you're welcome. I like the idea of sort of like, yeah, like, like haptic engagements, other senses. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure there's a chapter in your new book which is about smelling the weather. Yes, so what does the weather smell like today? Yeah, what does it smell like today? Uh, it's been really damp in Edinburgh, so it smells of, of damp soil and, mm-hmm. and leaves that are beginning mm-hmm. to come off that kind of decay mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the gentle beginnings of the decay smell also it smells like people breaking the smokeless zone regulations and burning mm. shit because people love to have a fire in the new town why is it important though to have a sort of a literal sense of the weather more than like thinking about you know what's going on why is it important to have that sort of sensory olfactory there we go response like in addition to sort of seeing the like oh it's raining I'm getting wet what is the significance of like bringing other senses into it? what sort of things do you think that we can learn like wh- why that sounds quite aggressive why <laughs> all of our questions this evening are, you can tell that we've, we both had a long day we're like why just tell me why why should I smell clouds <laughs> I used a very long word olfactory, olfactory. so I think Obviously, from the point of view of the book, what it's talking about is tapping into historic folkloric ritual practices of knowledge and engagement in a contemporary witchcraft setting. But more generally, when we make visual sense our primary sense, it shows a profound ignorance of all the things that are going on all the time that we think we're seeing, but we're actually not seeing. We're apprehending through different senses. So, for example, um, you often can't see if it's going to snow until it starts snowing because snow clouds look a lot like rain clouds or fog clouds or just clouds that are going to do anything but you can smell if it's going to start snowing because just before it starts snowing the temperature comes up to allow the clouds to release the snow otherwise it's too cold and it's just frozen inside the clouds so your nasal epithelium which has been really really cold and so couldn't smell anything gets a little bit warmer and allows you to smell the layer of cold that's there and that's why it smells of snow it's because you've not been able to smell very much previously for the last few hours because it's been below freezing and then it just comes up you can start smelling again and then it starts snowing often so often that's how you can tell that it's going to be warm enough on a very cold day to actually let itself snow amazing i never knew you could like smell temperature i mean i don't know does something kind of similar happen because i feel now i'm trying to think about all the times i've smelt cold or smelt heat as well yeah so hotness Heat has a smell as well, which is often like geographically located regarding the soil type and the types of plants that grow. But for example, uh, wet heat, so humidity, mm-hmm. have a particular smell. And also hot, arid countries, they dry your epithelial lining out. So it becomes much harder to smell like in the desert than it would in a kind of balmy Mediterranean midpoint. And a lot of that is also that certain oils are released at certain temperatures. So you probably have smelt when it's a really hot day, 
in certain places, like I'm thinking in France, but also there are forests in Scotland where this is true, where you can smell the sap of pine trees. It's released through the needles at a certain heat point. So that's a way of understanding how hot it is, not just through your sight, but also not just through feeling it on your skin. That's really cool. And also a very long word that I have just liked. Epithelial... Delicious. So many new words for Louise today. So many new words for me. I mean, I'm not going to be able to spell it, but it's fine. (laughs) No, but I love that. I'm now now just trying to think back. I know, like, have I smelt the summer? And like, have I smelt the changing of seasons? And is that a way that I mean, I probably am. I should probably be a bit more aware of it right now. But all I smell most of the times is uh, on my daily commute is the back of a bus. Smells awful. The exhaust is really great. And then I worry when I get into work that I just smell of the bus all day mm-hmm. um but yeah so those are the only smells that i've had to come to thank god for long online teaching that's all i could say yeah uh. <laughs> there's that really cliche it's a bit of a live laugh love type thing now but you know the smell after it rains petrichor mm. is that the word petrichor, which is yeah. like the coolest word ever but i feel it's kind of been co-opted a little bit by like karen memes so i feel like such a cliche for being like oh i love the smell after it rains like oh basic like you and everyone else it's super interesting though because the compound that you smell after it rains which is josemin is also present in fish particularly fish that have been grown up in rivers so river trout and beetroot and although we really like to smell it it's a reason that people often think river fish taste muddy and that beetroot tastes of soil is because they both contain really high levels of josamine in them, which is the same thing that we smell in petrichor. Ah. This does make sense. I'm about to shout through the, the door at my partner who fucking hates beetroot and be like, well, you like the smell of rain, don't you? Why don't you eat your fucking beetroot? The other thing with that, with both of those, is if you put an acid on it, it takes the josamine away. So like lemon on the fish or pickling the beetroot. She rolled upon it. We invite you to revise and resubmit. Sex magic. Correct. Tell me more about sex magic and food and the kitchen. And is that where the sex magic happens? I, I literally earlier on when I was reading up about all the things you've been doing recently, I googled Alice Tarbuck sex magic. So that is the title of your sex date. I'm so sorry, but please everybody don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the results are going to be such a letdown. I didn't go to you know to, to images or anything. Yeah, I don't. Sixteen. I stroked her perfectly formed kidney. <laughs> No, sex magic mostly takes place in, well, it depends what era you are thinking about vis-a-vis sex magic. But sex magic takes place in a number of locations, often not the bedroom, often a ritual space. So like uh, in front of an altar or in a coven scenario, if you're in the 70s. If you're in early Christian Rome, then it obviously takes place in sacred Bacchic cults, having terrifying orgies below the streets of Rome that have to be banned. There's no evidence that that ever happened, but... Pliny was really big on it. Pliny was a wanker, though. I had to do... I did Latin for GCSE. I don't know if you know guys, but... F.A. Romani. <laughs> Eventually, it all burns down in the most tragic way. Yeah. No one can see this because, you know, this is an oral medium, but Alice literally just took a victory sip after... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it all burns down anyway. <sighs> no, I want to do more about... Yeah, kitchen, kitchen magic. Kitchen magic is sex magic. This is... I want to know more about this. How is kitchen magic sex magic? Sex... Sex... Magnet. Uh-huh. Yep, uh, as Tom Jones so often says. So, kitchen magic, well, kitchen magic and sex magic are discreet, but... Alice, I'm reading an article where you've literally written kitchen magic and sex magic. I've done my research. You did my research. <laughs> yes, they are two things, but they are all the same thing. Okay. Because 
kitchen magic is a way of introducing kind of bodily care, mm. um, which is, it's also a way of seducing people. Like the first time I ever had sex with my first boyfriend was after I had made extremely good dinner that involved baked peaches. Mm. Which now, after Call Me By Your Name, feels weird. But um, <laughs> I think that, that kitchen magic is sex magic because they are united in this idea of the things we can help other people. Like, we have really limited abilities to help other people in a lot of ways, person to person, unless we're kind of doctors or millionaires or millionaire doctors. We are doctors. I just want to say that right now. We, all three of us are doctors, mm-hmm. actually. Just got yeah. a kidney thought. <laughs> you are. <laughs> They are kind of acts of bodily intervention and their ways of... There's also, obviously, in Kitchen Magic, quite a lot of capacity for aphrodisiacs, which, like, are a real thing. I mean, they're not they're not bullshit. They're real real science. They don't always work on everyone, and I've never been convinced by oysters. But, but I feel like there's a lot that can be done with cooking to kind of bring... to set moods and bring intimacy. And I'm also a big fan of Kitchen Magic from the point of view of, like, I do a lot of getting drunk in kitchens... and i think that i think that inebriation is a great facilitator of both sex and and food i mean every house party ever r.i.p but you know Mm -hmm. the best chat was always in the kitchen i'm now just thinking of that ikea advert like you can always find them in the kitchen at parties i want to have a kitchen party right now oh my god i know you'd better Interdisciplinarity is not always for the best. Stay in your lane. I mean, not to maybe take it too close to the bone in terms of 2020 uh, and the shit's fire that it is, bone. but all bone. In your endo. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is the level that we're at. Well yeah, done. <laughs> yeah. We all have PhDs. We all have PhDs. Bone. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of like where we are in our current situation where you know we actually don't have a lot of intimacy right now are there things that you have been doing or cultivating as a way of kind of overcoming that like what what are the kind of essential witchy skills because i think there's like a lot of overlap here with all your kind of um witch research and witchiness yeah how can we get through this apocalypse without this kind of like haptic intimacy that we've been talking about it seems like that's something that is harder to access right now so there are a bunch of answers one of which is, is this actually secretly a question about how I've been getting laid in lockdown? <laughs> <laughs> no, but please tell us more. <laughs> uh, no. So a couple of articles, one written by Christina McLeish about um, touching your house, about haptic intimacy with your with your home. I mean, I don't know about you, but I touch my house a lot. I touch my house all the time. I don't always even ask first which is terrible of me but uh, <laughs> yeah um, and I think that one of the things we have to do is discover I've been learning a lot about people about the differences in the way we process sensory information recently mm-hmm. and that one of the ways that we can divide people which is quite clumsy but quite interesting is between people who are sensory seeking and people who are sensory avoidant okay. um, and I'm a sensory seeking person so I have always liked sensation um, mm-hmm. I'm one of those people who likes to touch clothes before they buy them or like is very like I love things that are made of silk. I love things that are like because you're fancy. Because I'm really fancy. 
you're, you're wrapping up this language like, oh yes, like haptic intimacies. You're just a fancy lady. You <laughs> like silk. <laughs> it's very interesting because because when I was little, my I used to really really hate wearing jeans when I was like under ten, and I've realised now I think it's because I found the denim a really overwhelming too coarse too coarse mm-hmm. for my fine fine skin, which should only have ever been wrapped in silks. So one of the things that I do that I'm aware that other people probably think is is really mad is try and touch my house or, or engage my house with my body in ways I wouldn't normally so big fan of lying on the floor mm, big fan directive. of like, yeah of a carpet or I have like tiles in my bathroom which are nice and cold big fan of like putting my face against a door nice cool quite glossy wood I sound like a maniac is that because people are shutting the door on you yeah and you're like <laughs> friends friends <laughs> I'm someone the other day who was like oh but doesn't everyone lick the condensation off windows and I was like no no they don't absolutely not okay, I'm glad that you drew the line there Alice as well <laughs> <laughs> yep and especially in this time of respiratory airborne pandemic I feel like I cannot mm. condone licking the condensation off windows which is just your breath <laughs> yeah it's just other people's breath actually I also think that we don't talk a lot about so there's a lot in the sex chapter about masturbation and I, I think we don't mm. talk a lot about the fact that although I mean pretty much everyone masturbates who wishes to you know I think that the strictures on it religiously are much less in kind of contemporary society than they used to be I think that masturbation is often seen as like a means to an end or like a compensatory like you'd much rather be having sex but if you can't be then like here's the other thing you can do and I think if like the kind of love honey sales during covid have taught us anything it's that taking masturbation really seriously and trying to like put aside space in the same way that you would if you wanted to like have really great sex with someone like you know do some preparation make sure you've got nice music on put aside an evening is like a much more serious thing for people who live alone now Mm -hmm. because it's a way of not minimizing your own needs or pretending they're not there or condemning those kinds of self-pleasure as being kind of stand-ins for real yeah because they're not like they are the first body you you ever have and the last body you ever have yeah exactly and the whole kind of like I don't know, fake idea of, like, false intimacy. It just means, like, no one misses the penis that much. Like, Correct. I, mean, like... I have never missed the penis, so <laughs> we're good. Mm-hmm, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. The penis is the most easily replicated of all of the, of all of the gems. You're basic, <laughs> Alex. All right. I'm so sorry. <laughs> My hetero ways. Yeah. <laughs> It seems like a, a good time to sort of ask more about sort of witchcraft and about feminism and intersectional feminism. That was a very good segue you did there, talking about like cutting off the penis and be like, so tell us more about witchcraft. <laughs> yeah, it was a really subtle segu there. Segu? <laughs> yes. Segue. I know, but I segu. can tell it's segu, so I call it segu because it's, because I'm, you know, quirky like that. So witchcraft and sort of intersectional feminism, like what is the status of witchcraft now You're, you sort of said in the um sort of synopsis for the book about you know it's got this huge history of either like getting burnt at the stake or doing these like melodramatic like 1970s like weird covens but what does it mean now and can we make it accessible and intersectional and stuff so what what is it to be a witch now like how how do you make sure that you engage intersectionally and in an accessible way so it's really interesting because unlike kind of most governing world religions or indeed like fringe single organizations witchcraft doesn't have a governing body witchcraft is such a huge umbrella it you know there are lots of people who practice um who define as as wiccans who would Mm -hmm. see themselves as being part of a kind of a religion 
people who would define themselves as pagans, who would see themselves as being part of one of any number or no religion, but um, pagan as defined as kind of not Christian, but also a general interest in other forms of spirituality. There are people who would define themselves as people who do magic, but who don't have any spiritual connection with it. Um, And there are people who would define themselves in kind of every possible way that you can imagine. And the thing about that is that it fundamentally means that progress is both very easy because it progress is literally people deciding to do a new thing and very hard because there's no kind of standard across the board. It's not like there's a church you can go and complain to if you're if you're feeling upset and sad about something. So I very strongly believe that and the kind of the kind of popular uprising of witchcraft in the last ten years kind of really backs me up on this, that that more and more people who have intersecting identities are practicing witchcraft from minority groups. A lot of the reason for this is because witchcraft has traditionally been a minority pursuit. If you are someone to whom power and success come easily because you are in the dominant group, it's very unlikely that you're going to turn to occult means to try and boost your your odds because you're already on the top of the pile. It's also very clear to me that witchcraft is a way of coping with uncertainty. And when we look at any sets of statistics for minority groups, we can see that they will face a lot more uncertainty. So there is a reason, I think, that witchcraft appeals to minority groups. Witchcraft is organised. So, for example, we have a Scottish pagan federation, which you can join, or there are kind of Wiccan organisations you can join. But there's also a huge amount of freedom, and that means that splinter groups are typical they are the norm not the exception Mm -hmm. so there are places in which witchcraft is not practiced intersectionally which uh, which it maintains ideas of biological essentialism very rigidly rigged around boundaries you often see a lot of witchcraft relates to kind of mythic information about whatever country you're in so male and female deities often feature quite strongly in senses of the masculine and the feminine as being kind of governing polarities that animate the world and so many contemporary witches are breaking those down or reusing them in really interesting ways that move away from these kind of very essentialist, traditionalist ideas of, of gender roles, for example, or gender identities. Witchcraft is also something that fascists love to to use, to appropriate. So the Nazis famously had a strong interest in the supernatural and occult. You see that in their use of the swastika or in their use of runes on uniforms. So Himmler particularly was super interested in the occult and used ideas of runic divination to create a kind of Aryan mythology. So witchcraft practices are are things that can very quickly descend into nationalism, as can almost all ecological practices, I think. Heidegger again. Yeah, Heidegger steps into the room wearing a pointy hat and steps out again again silently. Um, (laughs) So there's all of those things that kind of go together to create ideas of witchcraft which are essentialist in some ways. And because witchcraft has so many diverse sources, it's a syncretic religion or syncretic practice. You can take bits from anywhere. You won't find two witches who do things exactly the same. And that creates chaos, I think, in some ways, but also the freedom for people to say, no, this is mine and you can't take it away from me. Um, And I think that's really, really important. I am very dedicated to the idea that any contemporary witchcraft practice must be intersectional to be effective because mm-hmm. after all for all people like to talk about witch hunts in certain circles people who would attempt to in- exclude intersectional identity from witchcraft are not the witches they are the hunters i think that's a very important thing to remember no i would agree and it, it feels like it's again like going back to um just all the elements of your work that you've been talking about so do you think that witchcraft lends itself to sort of i don't know like queer or quip uh, quip oh my god queer or crip ecologies that kind of kind of more expansive engagements with landscapes and texts almost as well. Yes, and I think fundamentally what unites my interest in witchcraft with my interest with my academic pursuits that are outside of witchcraft is queer and minority engagement with landscape in non-traditional way because 
witchcraft is one way of being in the world, of being with, with the world. And queer and crip ecologies are also ways that refigure our dominant modes of discourse around being in and with the world and ask us to look at them from a different perspective. And I think that in those perspectives is where the richness and the potential for change lies. Because if you already are somebody who can't walk through the woods or can't climb a Monroe or can't get outside your own flat unassisted, then your engagement with the world and, and your being in the world is, is a form of kind of radical engagement against mm. the mainstream. It has to be. Mm-hmm no matter how completely unradical it feels to you as someone who does it. A thing that has been fascinating writing a book on witchcraft, and I realise this is a very naive thing to say, is that people have been quite shocked by it. And it is one of the least shocking things I can imagine. It's a series of very ordinary ways of thinking about the world, as far as I am concerned. But I am aware that that is not the dominant discourse. And so it, and like as a queer person, I'm constantly shocked when everything isn't gay. <laughs> I'm like, sorry, sorry, this is straight again. Like we're doing this again. This seems like a waste of everybody's time. Didn't we already try this? Did this not go well the first time? Are we still, we're still knocking on that door, are we? Okay, sure. <laughs> For me, if we look at something like queer ecology, where the landscape is figured both as being more profoundly strange than it's usually thought of, but also mm-hmm. more profoundly open to participation in ways that we wouldn't normally think of, then that for me is precisely where witchcraft steps in because it says you don't need all the things you've been told you need and you can get out of this. Lots of things that you've been told you can't get out of this. And that's always been true throughout all of its history. And you said that it's like been sort of a 10-year uptake in sort of numbers of people practising witchcraft. Do you think that witchcraft is like at this particular moment where it feels like the world well the world is literally on fire in some places you know you you have got a very sort of fascist rise coming out do you think that in that horrible now more than ever phrase which i really hate using but but now more than ever do you think that witchcraft has a place in radicalism that perhaps it wasn't as radical before maybe it was like more about the aesthetics previously in like the 70s and stuff is there a sort of an emergency or an emergent need for new which ways emergency? of thinking which emergency which emergency yeah. mm-hmm. so basically yes i mean i should say about the 70s that although there was an awful lot of schlocky nonsense there was also stuff like uh which w-i-t-c-h who were a feminist protest group who were very active in the 70s and indeed uh, although it has not been continuous are still active and turn up at protests silently dressed in black with their faces hidden and are spooky and brilliant and have always been intersectional since the 70s and that witchcraft has always had to um there's an academic called isabel stengers who is really really interested in systems of power and she uses the witch as a kind of anti-capitalist figure because she says that you know as in kind of marx's capitalism is an enchanting force and witches are an enchanting force so they can stand outside capitalism and offer a counter enchantment to it Mm -hmm. from a position that very few people can and one of the lovely things she says about witchcraft is that when people ask if witchcraft is real witches laugh because they don't care if it's real they only care if it's effective Mm -hmm. which i think is a really really lovely kind of centralizing and there is always an uptick in the occult around times of economic and social disaster always there was a huge rise in seance attendance after both world wars it's one of the reasons for the in the 1950s when the witchcraft act was repealed it was replaced by the fraudulent psychics and mediums act because psychics and mediums were so popular after the world wars because people wanted desperately to be in touch mm-hmm. with people they'd lost the um, the victorian interest in the occult comes from a diff- slightly different angle because it comes from a scientific mm-hmm. of the natural sciences but you almost always see witchcraft as being a kind of a hopeful voice in the ruins of capitalism and capitalism has been on the brink of ruin several times so the 1970s witches hexed the stock exchange and then you have in 2016 which is 
having huge hexing ceremonies for Trump. Oh, please come through. Come yes, through. Come on with you. <laughs> come on with um, And I think this is one of the things that we forget is that witchcraft is a kind of alternative bewitchment. It lets you step mm-hmm. out of the dominant systems of the world and go like, oh, what about this? However, one of the things, so at the moment I teach a course with Claire Askew called Toil and Trouble, which is about responsible witchcraft because like everything, Witchcraft is also co-optable by the forces that would like to sell you things. So many witchcraft supplies are of dubious ethical origin. For example, all those beautiful crystals that everybody loves are often mined by children or people in like terrifying conditions like blood diamonds, but blood crystals, if you like. But quartz, yeah. But quartz, yeah, exactly. But not even as valuable as, as diamonds. Oh, it's okay if it's valuable. But... Yes, yeah, it's fine, it's valuable. <laughs> um, the, yeah, the blood diamond endorsement campaign starts, starts here but it, it's something that people have to be really wary of because like there's so many you can go on instagram and like search hashtag witch goals and there's mm. so many beautiful flat lays and there's so many beautiful expensive acquisitive mm-hmm. practices and i'm hoping that what the book does and also what what all of witchcraft history does is show you that you don't need any of those things that witchcraft has always been done with scraps and bits and spares and leftovers because it's always appealed to people who didn't have the resources to gain the thing they wanted straightforwardly, so therefore also couldn't afford expensive equipment. I love that. It's very kind of like egalitarian and yeah. democratic communist witchcraft. Enjoy communist that. Witchcraft. It's the only way. Love that. It's the it's only the way. By which I mean, this is a timely contribution to research. The only thing I know about hexing is that a bunch of teens on TikTok tried to hex the moon. Yes, she seemed largely undisturbed. But tell me more about hexes and if you could cast a hex on anyone right now. Right now. Public figure. You don't have to be personal. It's fine. Uh, Who would it be? Yes. So hexing is a really broadly defined thing. It's any bad wish that is magically sent essentially um Mm -hmm. and is kind of quite taboo the wiccan rule is um do what thou wilt and it harm none um and it's often believed in witchcraft that if you send something bad out you get it back three times so it's you know it's maybe not a very clever idea and i think any of us who've ever tried to take revenge or tried to like get even it never goes particularly well and it doesn't usually bring us peace and I, I do sort of think that the best revenge is, is living well. That said... There's not a lot of caveats what's happening here. <laughs> yeah, that said, hexes are a very good way of dealing with our bad thoughts and feelings. So one of the best ones, one of the most effective ones, is the one that is really also really easy, which is that you make, you write down someone's name on a piece of paper and you roll it up and you put it in an ice cube tray. Fill the mm-hmm. ice cube tray with water. When they're ready and they're all frozen, you turn them out and you just keep them at the back of your freezer and that person is slowly and surely frozen out of your life. <laughs> Santa Claus we never see. Santa Claus, what's that? Who's he? No one cares for you, us, me, A fractionally paid ECR. It's hard I think that hexes are a good way of, and I think particularly in academia as women there are structural Mm -hmm. injustices done against which stands can never properly be taken because the people involved are so protected that there is no way that your very reasonable grievance is ever going to be aired in a way that doesn't damage you more than it damages them Mm -hmm. and i think in in situations of structural inequality hexes are fine 
So how would you hex the academy? Like just to sort it out, what would be your yeah. one thing that you'd be like, right, this is what I'm going to do to sort out the academy? So I think what I would do is attempt a very complicated and doubtless very tiring spell that would sort the economy in such a way that it was no longer a prerequisite of any post-school employment to have done a degree and also by that token reinstitute government grants for tertiary education because I think everyone who wants to should be able to access it but I don't think everyone should feel they have to because I think that is where the marketization is allowed to first creep in this idea mm-hmm. that you can take money from people for their education I think is fundamentally wrong and I think that education should be free to everyone at every stage but it should not be a prerequisite of subsequent employment unless it's a practical thing like being able to fit a system which please please have done the course before you come and fix my loo but also like or you know touch my kidneys or touch my kidneys well well you know it's been a long year i've been rubbing the floor a lot and it's just not getting me off (laughs) what it used to um (laughs) i think i might also and this is a really terrible thing to say just remove all the professors just take them away yes good good tell us more tell us more keep going (laughs) remove all all current professors who were made professors anytime outside the last five years give them small pensions or plots of land or whatever it is you do with old professors. I mean, small pensions, they're probably fucking fine. Let's be honest. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I mean, sorry. Sorry, everyone. When, when you're saying plots of land, I was like, are you talking about graves? <laughs> and from those jobs, create two smaller livable salaries and employ two people. I would also get rid of tutorial assistant posts. Anyone who is asked to teach for the university should be employed on a year-long contract and given research time. End of story. Because it's so cool. It's the cruelest of all the systems. Burn them all. Burn them all. I think that starting again might be quite a good idea at this point. Really? Because I don't Mm -hmm. see that there's an awful lot left to save. I also think maybe no more principles just no more principles oh yes, mm-hmm. yes. No, I, like no, it, but I like that on both levels I like it principal as in <laughs> PAL but yeah. also no principles PLE yes correct um, done would be good uh, both. Uh, just end, end uh, both of them out the window please yeah out the window just gone just gone correct mm-hmm. this is my permission to everyone who needs to to hex the institute it's been seven hours and fifteen days of back-to-back teaching over Zoom. Um, but yeah, is there anything else that you'd like anyone to be made aware of? Um, I suppose the book, which is available in all, book, the book is in good. all good bookshops, and um, mm-hmm. I would love it if people would buy it. Not much, just fine. And if anyone would like to give me a job. Oh, yes, that too, okay. Um, well, at the Welcome Trust. Yeah, at yes, the Welcome Trust. Please fund them. Yes, you're welcome. <laughs> Hashtag, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, awful. We've been Lol My Praxis. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you download your podcasts and don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. A five-star output deserves five-star rating. No reviewer two comments, please. Shout out to our biggest fan, Dr. Amy Bromley. You can get in touch with us at lawmypraxis at gmail.com or at lawmypraxis on Twitter. Today's episode was brought to you by the letter D and the number 80. Our shape this week, D. Remember to tell all your friends with apologies for cross-posting. Please do not reply all. Bye. Coming up on Lol My Praxis. Just erotic farting Bronte fan fiction is probably my calling, to be honest. We're joined by Dr. Emma Butcher. Academic or serial killer? Swipe right to find out.
she's an award-winning poet <laughs> who seeks to make poetry. I'll, I'll, no, I should do that again because I was laughing at the award-winning poet part. <laughs> As if you like lol, she won an award. <laughs> her mum gave it to her guys, award-winning. <laughs> this is going really well. I'm so good at this. Okay. Lol. <laughs> award-winning. <laughs> Oh, this is still going in. <laughs>